Hello, and welcome to the Becker's Physician Leadership Virtual Event. I'm Ayla Ellison, Editor-in-Chief of Becker's Hospital Review, and I'm pleased to be your moderator for today's discussion titled, From Physician to Physician Leader, Developing Your Skills, Motivating Your Teams, and Excelling at Care. I'm joined by two experts today to discuss this important topic. And before I dive in with my questions for them today, I'm gonna to turn the floor over to each of our panelists to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit more about their organizations. So Dr. Weiss, can I begin with you today? Sure, hi, um, my name is uh, Patrice Weiss. I'm the Chief Medical Officer and Executive Vice President at Curlian Clinic, uh, headquartered in Roanoke, Virginia. Um, we are a seven hospital uh, system, the largest non-governmental employer west of uh, Richmond. Um, we really have a geographical uh, spread of our, our, of our ambulatory practices of over 200 uh, miles. Um, and um, my, back, my clinical background is I am an OBGYN um, and still uh, clinically active as well. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. And Dr. Kelly, I'll turn the floor over to you now. Sure. Uh, yeah, thanks for having us here today. Uh, I'm Brian Kelly. Uh, I serve in the position of Surgeon-in-Chief and Medical Director at Hospital for Special Surgery. My clinical background is in orthopedic sports medicine with a subspecialization in hip injuries. I'm uh, as well still clinically active, uh, serve as team physician for uh, some professional teams as well. Um, HSS is a, is a subspecialty hospital. It's been around for clo closing in on 160 years. Uh, we're, we're based out of the Upper East Side of New York City. Uh, over the course of the last 20 years, we've expanded uh, relatively uh, significantly into the tri-state area. We have 15 satellite locations across the tri-state area. Uh, we are increasing our transition to uh, ambulatory surgery centers. So in addition to the main hospital, we also have uh, two ambulatory surgery centers in New York City. Uh, we partner with uh, Stanford Hospital in Connecticut and have an ambulatory surgery center, center there. And we have some, some uh, geographic footprint in in um, uh, Southern Florida as well, on, on, uh, in West Palm Beach. Uh, we focus solely on musculoskeletal injuries across the spectrum from uh, prevention to uh, performance to surgical treatment to non-surgical treatment, and also have a large rheumatology, uh, rheumatology department uh, for inflammatory diseases that affect the musculoskeletal system. Thank you so much, Dr. Kelly. And to start our conversation today, um, the title of our discussion, it covers a lot of ground. Um, so we're gonna start today by talking a little bit about motivating teams and excelling at care. So I wanna start by talking about, um, there, are, there have been a lot of studies that have come out over the, over the past couple of years about the rate of clinician burnout and physician burnout. Um, but one that I, was, I came across when I was doing a little bit of research recently um, it said that across all specialties, physicians were reporting burned out, being burned out in the last year, which I don't think is surprising um, given what the, you know, the, the pandemic and, and the challenges, of course, they've been facing. The, the study said that emergency medicine physicians have the highest rate of burnout at 60% and 37% of orthopedic surgeons reported feeling burned out. So given that um, and, and the current you know, climate in healthcare and, this, and the pandemic, um, you know, what, what have you done to keep your teams motivated and excelling? Um, of course, physician burnout is, is nothing new. It was a term that's, that's been around for so long and something we've been talking about, but of course has been, um, you know, 
we're seeing so much higher rates of it um, over the past few years. So any any tips or anything you can share with our audience today about how you're keeping your teams motivated and excelling? Um, Dr. Weiss, do you want to start with that question today? Sure. And then um, I'll, I'll, I'll hold off on any comments on orthopedics since we have the, the specialists here on the, on the data that you quoted. You know, I think, I think the number one thing to do whenever there is um, a problem or, or a crisis, and, and certainly burnout is one of the crises in, in healthcare now, today, as well as, in my opinion, the opioid crisis and, of course, the, the worldwide pandemic. But I think first thing is you've got it. you got it name it. You got to own it. You got to name it. You got to bring it to the forefront. Um, and, and I think we've all done a really good job of discussing uh, burnout. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the word burnout. Um, I like to see the glasses half empty and not full, but nonetheless, it is a recognizable term. Maybe perhaps better focus on how can we improve our, our, our resiliency. But again, the first thing is to own it and talk about it. We've really had a, a clinic and system-wide response to provider resilience and, and helping with, with burnout. Um, we've, we've put, first of all, we, we've named it, we put well-being um, at, at the forefront. Um, the, and and we've, we've, we've discussed it. We've done other things where what we've tried to do even through um, the pandemic is increase access to any um, internal mental health and counseling services. We, we tried to expand and, and expand our hours and access to our employee assistant program if, if folks think that they need that. We've talked about things and implemented things such as moral distress uh, con, um, consults. Um, our, Schwartz, our Schwartz Grand Rounds, um, which obviously are, are all virtual, um, we, we've specifically attempted to address issues as it relates to resiliency and, and burnout. And we have a second victim program, which we're very proud of at Krillian called the Trust Team, which was really for providers that were involved in unanticipated outcomes or medical errors. And we expanded that to include um, system-wide topics such as um, um, burnout or resiliency. The other thing we, we did is we put, we took an administrative pause, right? So we said across the organization, let's really try to cut back on our number of meetings. Let's try to have no meetings scheduled between two and five in the afternoon, giving people with any type of administrative duties time to catch up. So when they go home, they're not playing catch up and they're not back on, on their electronic health, health record. Um, we've talked about and had leadership development as it relates to that. That's what we've done. We've done system-wide. Um, we've also done something called Code Lavender, where it's where you recognize um, that there may be some moral distress or, or um, some, some burnout symptoms um, in a colleague. But we also recognize very specifically that there can be this real big umbrella, but oftentimes the distress the burnout, the, the, the challenging resilient issues may be very specific within departments. So we tried to create an envelope or an umbrella, but then also give people tools and identifications that they can do within their own departments. Fortunately, before the pandemic hit, we had just completed a wellness slash burnout survey and found sort of unique, there were some unique things within the departments that, that were not across every department, giving them resources to specifically um, address those. And certainly in, in our emergency room, we were an emergency department, we were very fortunate that one of our leaders 
in resiliency and burnout was one of our um, emergency department physicians. So implementing their, um, you know, a, 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 wellness, a wellness program, um, also filtering the email messages that go out. So there's a consistent message that, that does go out. Huddling up, and when we do our daily huddles, we talk about not only patients, patients care, but we also talk about um, issues of, hey, how are we doing? Um, how are things going? Um, when we do debriefs, we then stop and say, how's the team? Is everybody doing okay? Does anybody need a, a, a 10 minute break? Does anybody need a cup of coffee? Um, so, so we've tried to do it globally, but then we've also tried to do address specific issues that may be unique within a particular um, department. Thank you so much, Dr. Weiss. And I think that's so interesting to what you noted about. There are resources, training, things you wanna do, take a system-wide approach to, but really looking at it from a, by each department as well and what their specific needs may be, um, or they might be different um, depending on which department. And also it, I, I really loved your examples about, you know, when not to schedule meetings, um, those quick check-ins, how's the team doing? Do you need a cup of coffee? Um, those aren't things that require a huge investment or they aren't, you know, giant pivots that the organization is making, but as you know, it can make a huge difference in the life of a, of the, a physician. So, um, and I, I love the wording about resiliency versus um, using the burnout ter terminology as well. Dr. Kelly, I'm gonna turn things over to you now. Um, I, as I noted in the study, it said, I think it was 37% of orthopedic surgeons in the past year reported high levels of burnout. Um, but anything um, specific that um, your organization's doing to help um, build resiliency in your physician workforce and surgeon workforce or to combat burnout? Yeah, and I, and I appreciate the, the discussion. I think it's really a critical area of concern for uh, all areas of healthcare. And, and when I started in the position three years ago, this was a priority of mine even before the pandemic. And I think the impact of the pandemic on healthcare in general has magnified the effects of, of uh, burnout and, and resilience. We'd actually, similar uh, uh, to Patrice, had also done some surveys prior, uh, just prior to the pandemic. And so we had a pretty good sense of where the issues were. And uh, we didn't do it by department, but we did do it by level of training uh, since we're you know, predominantly orthopedics here. Uh, and we saw that there's, um, we had you know, close to a 40% burnout rate in our, in our residents and fellows. And it got a little bit less as you move further along in your career. And uh, the, younger, uh, the younger surgeons tended to have an increased incidence of burnout than, uh, than the ones who had a more, a more mature practice. And I think the stresses of starting a practice, coming out of residency and training, and then all of a sudden you have all of these uh, addi additional responsibilities and there's nobody that's going to back you up uh, is a very challenging part of anybody's career. So I think recognizing where people are in their career uh, and then there's another peak as people get older, uh, you know, people are transitioning to their end of their end of their career. Um, you know, they spent their whole lives as surgeons and physicians, and they're not quite sure what's next for them. And, and uh, how do you have a, a transition plan for senior surgeons and senior physicians um, as we see another uh, spike in burnout in that group? Uh, so I think, as Patrice said, it's a lot of this is about education. It's about understanding what the specific nature of the problem is. Uh, and it's about removing the stigma and recognizing this is a real issue that 
doesn't mean, and, you know, orthopedic surgeons are supposed to be the, you know, they're supposed to be tough and we don't complain, uh, but recognizing that it's, it's natural, normal, and uh, okay to have, have issues that need to be addressed. And, um, you know, in, in, in uh, developing peer support so that your peers are actually the ones that are identifying the problem or, or uh, noting that there's some issues. Uh, I think, um, you know, I had several priorities at the early stages of my role as surgeon chief. Uh, and the, the, one of the things I, you know, if you, if you look at our mission statement, it's to provide the best quality, highest quality musculoskeletal care for patients so they can return to their active lifestyles. Uh, but I think the second part of it is to ensure that the place that physicians are working is the best place for them to work as well. So it's the best place for patients to receive care and it's the best place for physicians to provide care. And I think making sure that physicians have the resources, uh, particularly in this sort of challenging and evolving healthcare landscape where there's a little bit of unpredictability about what's, what it's going to look like in the future, uh, you really want to focus on providing uh, the doctors with all of the resources that they need, uh, not to just to work, but to grow their careers, to develop and, and to practice. Um, and I think that you know, ultimately setting our medical staff up for continued success is a critical enabler in delivering the top quality of orthopedic care. And you, and you see this, uh, lots of studies not only show that burnout and resiliency are issues but they, uh, for the physician, but they also actually uh, have, a, have an impact on quality of care that's being provided to the patient. So it's really, really important. Um, in the uh, wake of the pandemic, we kind of accelerated some of the things we're doing and a lot of things that Patrice mentioned, we, we also uh, uh, did to prioritize physician wellness. And I think resiliency is a really critical term uh, to uh, pr promote unity and cohesion of our teams to make sure that there's, uh, people are supporting one another. Uh, one of the things we did do during the, the pandemic as uh, an orthopedic hospital, we had to convert into a COVID hospital. We actually converted our uh, operating rooms into ICUs uh, we, and we had our orthopedic attendings acting as interns in the ICU as our critical care anesthesiologists were trying to take care of these really sick patients. Uh, and our, our nursing staff, which is an unbelievable nursing staff, but are trained to take care of relatively healthy elective orthopedic surgery patients all of a sudden were having to deal with ICU settings and critical care settings. So we brought on uh, a chief wellness and resiliency officer and formalized a role. And uh, Steve Forty, who is um, uh, ex, uh, he's an ex-Green Beret, uh, Beret and an ICU critical care uh, nurse, uh, was an amazing addition to the team and really sort of was on the front lines with the care providers uh, really looking for problems and trying to solve them immediately and try to make sure that people knew that um, there is a wellness strategy that, and we're going to target all of the patients and uh, develop physical, emotional, psychological, and social wellness. Uh, and, and he was, a, 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 I think, a great addition and really a, a statement to the staff and the, and the frontline pr providers that we, that we care uh, the final thing that we did was we, we um, were fortunate. We have a, a grateful patient whose daughter uh, is, a, is a graduating medical school and, and really understands all this, uh, supporting the, uh, the uh, building of a physical structure, which is going to be an HSS wellness center. Uh, it's going to be physical space dedicated to physician and, and staff well-being. So it'll have not, not only traditional physical exercise equipment, but we'll also launch a comprehensive program that involves therapies and other resources for the medical staff. So I think, um, you know, ha having a physical location is also 
uh, not only good for them, but it's also rep it's representative that this is an important uh, um, priority for us and we want to do everything we can to support them. That's, that's so interesting. And I think it goes back to what you mentioned earlier as well about the, the stigma that maybe once was attached to terms like burnout or, or physicians or surgeons coming forward saying they're experiencing these issues, seeing that your organization is investing, you know, time, money, all these resources into addressing well-being, um, resiliency, and, and these things, it, it really does bring it to the, to the forefront and I think probably um, helps open up those conversations and um, especially peer-to-peer in um, some of those programs that both of you mentioned. So thank you so much for, for sharing what uh, both of your organizations are doing um, to help keep your teams motivated, excelling, providing high quality care um, during these challenging times in healthcare. I say that, I, I think it, it's always a challenging time in healthcare, um, but you know, over the past few years when we've seen some of these um, burnout rates go up a little bit. Hey Patrice, um, can, I, can I ask a follow-up question on something? Because I, I always like to hear what other people are doing and see if there's things that we should be doing. You know, we, we um, started something that we termed an enrichment series for our medical staff, which, and it sounds like you did something similar, which is basically on a weekly basis, we have the medical staff get together and, and um, we have outside speakers come in and we really focused on, you know, um, the enrichment component to it. And then sort of the, you know, separate research and clinical stuff, I mean, people, but I really wanted to focus on the enrichment side and focus on wellness leadership development in the business of healthcare. Because I think these are areas that are peripherally involved to every physician, um, but not something that we talk about that much. Um, so we have we try to get guest speakers to come in and talk to the, uh, the staff about, about issues. How have you found your speakers? And because I, I always feel like we're looking for the right person to come in and uh, they're amazing speakers and we get great, uh, great feedback from it. Uh, but just it, it's uh, always it's a lot of work trying to figure out who, who's the right person to fit the needs of the staff. It, it is a lot of work. And I think it's it, the speakers can obviously come from two places, internal and, and you know, external. So when you're doing something big like a, a Schwartz Grand Rounds or even um, a, a co-combined departmental Grand Rounds, it's it's great to have an ex, an outside person. Right. And, and sometimes just the piece that, that that outside person validates that nationally people are feeling what you are feeling, I think really um, helps people understand, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not in this alone. I would also piggyback on something that, that you said, Brian, and that is the importance of visibility of leadership. And, and, and you know, you talked about that as well. Um, we're all, we think often in medicine, like we're supposed to be tough, things aren't supposed to get to us. Well, you know, when you have a, a physician leader say, you know, I'm feeling X, it, it makes it okay for somebody else to say, gosh, like I have feelings too. Like I'm allowed to have feelings. Um, you know, it, at Crillian, we really kind of did a lot of that through our second victim program where gosh, I'm ruminating about this case or I feel bad about this, but then you know, we blended it into to the burnout and, and resilience, particularly um, you know, through the COVID, the COVID pandemic. But I, I think the other piece that's so important is the visibility of leadership during times like this. Um, you know, I know we're gonna perhaps touch a little bit upon workforce issues. And, you know, one of the ways you, some of us have dealt with that is, you know, folks working virtually. Well, I think it's very important through this 
that the physical presence and the visibility of leadership and rounding regularly and being seen and then asking people, you know, not what's your daily census, but how are you doing? Um, and, and, and showing that you really care about your providers as people, just as you expect your providers to care for your patients as, as, as people. So I think there's a tremendous amount of role modeling um, that, that needs to be done and, and, and has been done. It sounds like your organization um, has certainly done that, done that as, as well. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and again, it's, you know, what you came from a clinical background and, and uh, transit and part of the, this I think is about transitioning into leadership. It's not one of the things they teach you uh, about leadership, but in fact, they don't really teach you anything about leadership. Uh, they just say, oh, you're, you're a good doctor, so you must be a good leader. And yeah. that's oftentimes how we identify people. But the skill set required to be a leader is something that is, uh, there's lots of tools to do it, but being present and being visible, I think is really absolutely critical. During COVID, we actually had um, uh, daily, I would alternate with myself and our CEO, a morning uh, video that we would, that we would, um, uh, uh, would go out at 7 a.m. every morning and it would talk about, here's what's going on, here's what we're doing, and, and uh, trying to be over communicate about what's going on because when things are so rapidly changing and people are like well yesterday we didn't have to wear masks and today we do and yesterday we were doing surgery and now we're not and uh and it's just it's really really stressful for people not to be in a routine and uh we're and try how you how you uh react and and communicate those things is is really important for the wellness of the people that are taking care of the patients and, and similarly, we had a, a daily email that went out from our systems um, chief operating officer. And I mean, I think we all know it's sort of in the beginning. Uh, sometimes if that email went out in the morning, things may have changed by guidelines in, in, the, in the afternoon. That's how rapidly things were changing. The other piece was our whole executive leadership team <clears throat> rounded regularly. And we rounded across all of our hospitals, not just at the level one trauma, um, level three NICU, where all the helicopters land, um, but all of our and all of our hospitals with with high visibility, and that meant it meant a tremendous amount um, to our to our staff and to our patients, and quite frankly, to the communities. I mean, um, we're very much integrated into all the communities where we have hospitals and and practice sites, and being physically present, I think made made a very very big difference. And and you can't you can't stop it. I mean, you got you know, you, you, you have to continue it. Thank you both so much. Um, it's so much uh, great um, advice from both of you and also just sharing um, more tips from what or the, the approach that each of your organizations are taking. Um, and I think that I know you two are learning from one another, but also um, I, I know that everyone watching today is, is learning a lot as well. Um, each of you mentioned the importance of leadership in, in all these initiatives, just the presence of leadership. Um, Dr. Weiss, you just mentioned the importance of leadership doing rounding. Um, you know, since you, you both talked about your clinical backgrounds um, earlier, and maybe that physicians or surgeons aren't always, um, you know, aren't given the best preparation to step into a leadership role, um, just that they were very successful as a physician. And so, and here you are today. But 
what is one of the, the most important lessons you've learned since you've stepped into your leadership role? What's one thing you'd like to share with, with others, physicians, surgeons that might be um, on a similar path or, or um, stepping into a leadership role? And Dr. Weiss, I'll start with you for that question. Okay. Um, well, I think it would come down um, for me one word, and it's people. Um, whether the people are the patients, whether the people are your coworkers, whether the people, um, you know, I think it's it was Teddy Roosevelt who said, um, uh, "People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care." And I think you can you can substitute in their patients, you can substitute in their coworkers, you can substitute in their medical learners, um, you can substitute in their the the community. And I and I think you know never losing sight of why we do what we do, why we do what we do, whether it's teaching medical students, teaching residents, taking care of patients, working with each other, mutual respect, <clears throat> healthcare, I like, you know, is, is a team sport, mutual respect across a multidisciplinary team. Um, you know, we have, I'm, I'm sure just as, as Dr. Kelly does, multidisciplinary rounds, safety rounds, um, crew resource rounds, you know, showing respect to every, to everybody, um, in that, um, I just I can't emphasize enough the importance of people first. Um, you know, I, yes, medicine has is is a business. Um, understand that. Um, very very trying times, but when people know you care, right? That that in my world um, is is a game changer. Such wonderful advice, Dr. Weiss. And what about you, Dr. Kelly? What, what's one of the, the most important lessons you've learned since um, stepping into your leadership role? Um, well, Patrice challenged me uh, to come up with a single word. Uh, <laughs> I think people's a, a, a good uh, top choice, uh, but uh, you, you touched on Patrice. The single word I would use is, is team. Uh, I think you can't, if you think you're gonna be a physician leader and you're gonna stand up and tell people what to do and ha have sort of an autocratic leadership style, I think that's not gonna work um, in, in our environment and probably not in many environments. And it really, you have to figure out what your leadership style is um, and you have to think about it and reflect on how, how are people responding to it, but you have to surround yourself with a team of people that you trust. And I think for me, this has been the most critical thing in helping me advance my leadership while fostering a culture of collaboration between leadership across the physicians, executives, and the physician executives. Uh, I, I um, uh, think that it's important uh, to eliminate a divide between the executive side of the house and the medical side of the house. And we've come up with this concept of shared leadership where the doctors really should be at, uh, at the table when uh, decisions are being made. And medical leadership and executive leadership merge should merge into one. Uh, I created what I, you know, sort of a core cabinet. We have, we have chiefs and chairs of departments, and then I have a strategy, uh, a strategy cabinet of physicians that where I can, you know, you know whether it's virtual, if, if we have to do it virtually, or when now we can start doing it in person, take them out to dinner and say, here's the three things that I'm struggling with right now to deal with. Like, what do you guys think? Like, how would you, how, what are your thoughts on this? And um, I think one of the advantages and disadvantages that you have is in, in a leadership role when you really are overseeing a, a, a big system uh, is that you have a lot more information. You have access to information and you may have 
a bigger picture a vision of things and the other people who are don't understand why decisions are made are only seeing it from a smaller perspective and the more that everybody understands the big picture uh, the more people will be able to uh, feel like they're part of the team and that they're all we're all rowing in the boat on the in the same direction so i think teamwork and identifying um the, the people who are who are going to be able to support you and and um help lead um and i think the, the hardest thing for me and the only other thing i would add is that just as it's a it's a learning process for uh, for me uh sort of leadership you know how am i evolving as a leader um the other thing that i found very challenging is how are you how are you going to identify the future leaders and how are you going to make sure that you are providing them with uh, the resources to to develop those leadership skills so that when they do transition or there is succession planning um, they're going to sort of have a little bit of a smoother transition than all right let's just pick the random person and put them in the role and see how they do and in sort of a sink or swim and so i think developing leadership programs uh, for those who either demonstrate an aptitude for it or an interest in it is really important for the future of the organization as well. And it can it can make leadership succession and transition a lot smoother. So being more proactive in your approach to, to developing it, um, future leaders of the organization. And also, like you mentioned, just helping um, everyone understand the why behind um, why some decisions are being made. And, and even if they don't agree with them, maybe understanding um, the reason behind it can can help get everyone on board and, and moving in the right or in the same direction. And um, I, think in the, I think in the spirit of, of team that Brian's and I love that, you know, there are leadership traits that are essential and really transcend all members of the team. So if you really do believe in people and you believe in that team, when you have an organizational and institutional leadership program, you know, have that open, have that be multidisciplinary, you know, be developing your nurse administrators along, along with that, be, be developing other leaders along it, not just a, in, in my opinion, a segregated physician or provider leadership program. I mean, leadership skills are leadership skills. And we also all wanna be talking the same language in, in leadership. Um, yes, there's going to be certain areas where you, you know, you need to break off a little bit, but, um, you know, we have really a collaborative leadership development program at Curlian where we bring multidisciplinary future leaders and current leaders together. So we all talk the same language. And it also shows we believe in multidisciplinary teams. It's not just about the quarterback. It's the whole team. Linemen are just as important as, I'm, I'm a sports junkie, but you know, linemen, blockers and tacklers are just as important as, as, as the quarterback. You know, when the team is only as good as everybody pulling together. <clears throat> really great advice and, and love the sports reference as well, um, Dr. Weiss. I wanna, we have about 10 minutes left and I wanna, um, kind of shift back a little bit. We were, uh, Dr. Weiss, you touched on um, some of these workforce issues much earlier in our conversation. So I wanted to briefly touch on that before we um, wrap things up today. But um, just because it's it's so top of mind for um, you know hospital health system physician leaders across the country, it's just with the staffing challenges that the many organizations are facing. Um, what what are your organizations doing to help you know? Um, attract new talent, but also retain, retain talent as well when we're seeing kind of, you know, some, some record breaking numbers with clinicians leaving the, the workforce. 
Um, Dr. Kelly, can I start with you on that one? Um, just any advice for how your organization is approaching that, um, that talent issue that, that many are facing? Sure, yeah, and it's a, it's a huge problem. It, I, I mean, the uh, particularly uh, frontline uh, nursing has, has been uh, a big issue. Uh, HSS has been fortunate historically to have very, very high retention rate. Uh, the the um, Our vacancy uh, uh, numbers have historically been extremely low, typically less than four or five percent. Uh, but we've seen doubling and in some areas of the hospital tripling of those numbers. Um, you know, they, they, and it's the amount of extra work that's been going, that's, uh, they've been faced with, it's been the stresses of all of the uh, things associated with the pandemic. And it's the, um, the fact that they're being offered these traveling opportunities where they can make, you know, three times what they're making over a 13 week period of time. And uh, they feel like if they're going to, if they can make some extra money uh, doing the same thing, then, then they, they should do it. So um, I think it goes back to what I said before. Uh, it's not just the place that, that we shouldn't just be the uh, place that allows patients to receive the best quality care, but we have to be the place that clinical doctors, nurses, uh, physician assistants, and all um, care providers, it's the best place for them to provide the care. That is a work environment that facilitates their ability to do what they do, to perform, perform their job, but also promotes a um, uh, the ability to have professional satisfaction and achieve things that make them feel good about what they're doing, not just taking care of the patients, but give uh, research programs and innovation programs and things that are exciting for them that are complementary to just taking care of the patient. Uh, we're also looking at opportunities to, to deliver care in innovative and convenient ways for the patients and the consumers and makes it easier for the care providers so we, we've um, developed a complementary digital care strategy, um, which does require some advanced technical talent. And I think um, this is a, a, one of the things that we learned from COVID is that virtual medicine works. And it also makes it a little bit easier on the, on the care providers. It reduces the volume of patients coming in. Uh, and it's also a great satisfier for patients if they don't have to travel. And in our case, come into New York City for, for their doctor's visits. Um, we have, a, a, I think, a robust professional development program that really tries to provide pathways and technical training for our staff so that they can help us um, develop some of these complement, complementary strategies. And uh, I think the, what we want to do is really uh, develop talent within the, within the organization um, so that we can attract the top talent in our field. We pay for educational programs. We have lots of our uh, our nurses will go on and get advanced degrees. The hospital uh, supports the, those educational endeavors. Uh, and we really want them to feel like they, they, they are working in a place that cares about them like a family member uh, and that we're providing the resources that we can to allow them to, to uh, succeed in their professional uh, uh, career. So investing in them, their long-term development, education, um, like you mentioned, there are some you know, opportunities right now for especially nurses to, to, you know, make some extra money going to work, um, you know, with a, with this, as a traveling nurse, but um, at the end of the day, if they know that they're working for an organization that's invested in them, their development, um, it's definitely something that would help um, keep them there and, and, invest, and motivated to do their work. What about you, Dr. Weiss at Krillian? What, what, what are you, what, what's your organization doing? 
Well, many of the things that, that, that Dr. Kelly addressed, I, I would say that you know, we, we recognized um, workforce shortages and challenges before the pandemic hit, as, as did other organizations. And, and of course, that exacerbated everything. One of the things that we were working on um, very strategically and diligently prior to the pandemic was how do we sort of develop and grow our own? So, you know, working with our local community colleges, working with our local universities, um, working with our allied health sciences um, schools to, to help with um, nursing and provider shortage. But we also noticed that we had shortage in, radi just for example, radiation technology, uh, phlebotomists, you know, trying to put all those programs into place um, for folks who live locally or, or are training locally and want, and want to stay in the Roanoke or Southwest Virginia um, region. So, so trying to do that ahead of time, um, you know, to, to, to address that. But, you know, clearly um, really have, have been hit hard with, with workforce issues. And we found ourselves where we basically traditionally recruited locally or regionally and found ourselves trying to recruit nationally and start offering relocation bonuses for, for people where there would never really, and I'm not talking about providers, physician providers, um, but other members of the healthcare team where we would really have, have never done that before. Clearly part of the way that we, we met some of our nurse or trying to meet our nursing shortages is through travelers. And that, that, that could be a whole, I think, um, uh, webinar, um, you know, on 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 itself, and and I think one can see both sides of that. One of the things that we implemented, and I really give our HR folks um, credit for this, is we actually implemented our own sort of internal travel traveler like company. So our own employees who may have been considering going and doing traveling for increased compensation, we developed sort of an internal traveling program where we said, you know what we will absolutely up the base pay for this work. And we actually didn't offer um, any benefits with it. And we actually had folks who were considering of leaving and going traveling. They didn't need benefits. They, their significant other or their spouse had benefits, ended up staying with us at a higher base rate and not taking um, any of the, of the benefits. So we've really been trying to, to be um, you know, to be creative, we've tried to create as best that we can flexible work schedules, um, uh, whether it's, it's in direct patient care or um, non-direct patient care for those folks that are involved in the delivery of health care, but not at the bedside, offering virtual options to them um, for providers who had some challenges with childcare, could we let them go to more of a virtualist model, let them do some more flexible hours of providing care as opposed to say the traditional eight to five when, when their own children were home from school and they didn't really have anybody to help watch, watch their um, children. So it's really been, um, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's been a challenge. I think you have to be creative. I mean, certainly I'm trying to increase compensation, increase retention um, bonuses. But at the end of the day, I think it also gets down to the culture and do they, do they feel um, appreciated? And um, you know, people can feel appreciated through money. People can feel appreciated through being um, recognized. People can also be appreciated by finding out what really is their obstacle to perhaps staying on board and being able to work. And then the organization trying to meet, meet their needs um, through different work um, options. 
you know, the other area too, where we, we saw workforce issues is really in our environmental services folks. Um, you know, transportation can be, can be a challenge for them. And when you look at what locals say, even fast food restaurants were offering to pay per hour, well, gosh, those hours are a whole lot better. There's no exposure. You're not walking into a building where there's infectious disease or patients with pandemics are, are being admitted. So I think you know you really had a really have to recognize a lot of these challenges um, to our to our staffs, um, you know, to upfront. And it wasn't it wasn't just nursing and it wasn't just physicians. Um, in fact, probably the physician issue was the least of all of it. It was um, nursing and then all the other support services um, to, to deliver that care. So, it, it, and it sounds like um, both of your organizations have, have taken similar approaches and just making sure that one, you're investing in your, your current um, clinician workforce, especially nurses right now, when it can be extremely tempting to um, make a move for, for compensation reasons. Um, like you mentioned, Dr. Weiss, it, it's not always, um, sometimes you can make adjustments where, like you said, raising the base pay, but then um, for those employees who, or maybe nurses who don't, who don't need the benefits or don't want them. Um, so just trying to, to meet, the, meet them where they are and, and try to get them to stay versus um, seeing them leave for something that could have been avoidable and, and, an easy, and a somewhat easy fix. So. Um, I really appreciate both of you um, taking time out of what I know are incredibly busy schedules to share your insights and your expertise with us. Um, there could be a whole nother 30-minute, uh, 40-minute conversation, two-hour conversation on some of these issues that we were able to delve into just a bit today. So I, I can't thank you enough for your time. And for everyone who's tuning in today, thank you so much. Please let us know if you have any questions, if you have any feedback for us, and we hope you'll join us for future Becker's events. Thanks very much. Thank you.